You are listening to a recording from the sound archive of the Jung Center of Houston Bookstore and Library. For more information about the Jung Center, visit our website at www.junghouston.org or call us at 713-524-8253. This recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. I want to spend the morning talking about uh, dialectical theism. I thought that would probably get a laugh, and that bothered me a lot. That uh, you all don't take me seriously. Um, the reason for that is because it occurs to me, <clears throat> because it occurs to me that for most of us there is a sense of a kind of lonely anonymity vis-a-vis a personal relationship with God. Now, we're talking about a personal relationship with God. That is the sense that God, whatever that constellates for you, really knows me by name, really is a being to whom I can relate, suffers when I suffer, uh, laughs in joy, and delights in my joy, a God that directs and rules my heart, a God that has set down certain spiritual rules for behavior and when I follow them, I am in a relationship, and when I don't follow them, that there is a sense of estrangement. A personal God, a God that was there at my conception, will be there at my death, and with whom I will dwell eternally. A personal God in the sense that this God knows uh, the very thoughts of the deepest, uh, darkest regions of my own mind, a God that knows the deepest motivations of my unconscious, a personal God <clears throat> to whom my life makes a difference. There is, it seems to me, because it occurs to me, in each of us, a realm that doesn't believe that. When we talk about a cognitive concept of God, I am much more at peace <clears throat> with a general description of higher being, ground of being, that which is the one from whom all things flow. I'm much more comfortable personally with the concept of God as creator than I am with God as personal, uh, as close as hands and feet, uh, as much a part of my own psychological and spiritual system as my heart 
beat is to my body. If I have a personal relationship with God, then why isn't it like all my other personal relationships? My personal relationships run the, uh, the gambit from superficiality to intimacy, from suspicion to trust, from joy to despair, from consistent expectation to a wild, unexpected interruption. But some point, when I began to analogize my personal relationships to my relationship with God, there comes a, a gap that I cannot cross. And so that I finally cannot say that God is like anything. Except I can't avoid, when I talk about God, of saying God is like. And yet nothing finally captures. Now, <clears throat> I want to simply begin today by inviting you into my discussion of the nature of God by an open confession of one who has uh, struggled consciously for over 20 years in the theological realm, uh, reading classical theology from the Patristic Fathers, uh, reading... Uh, the enlightened theologians uh, post-enlightenment, reading the contemporary theologians and writing a little theology myself, I must say that I still struggle uh, right in the forefront of my consciousness now rather than in, in a back corner. And I think the reason for that is because I was born uh, to be troubled about God. Uh, also because it is a part of my responsibility to have the concept of God in the forefront of my consciousness. That's some of what I'm expected to do with my time. Now, maybe I'm supposed to say this for you. Maybe that is what I'm called to do. Uh, there's a small segment of the people of God to which I have been called, uh, more than we have chairs for, but But on a scale of one to second Baptist, it's small. <laughs> and those people to whom I've been called to minister uh, seem to appreciate the fact that I'm not as interested in berating you about how imperfect you are as inviting you into my imperfection and sharing it publicly and talking about my own doubts and concerns and difficulties as I attempt to do theology. That's very threatening for some and, and they're not here. <laughs> which, is, which is fine. Um, if they want to be berated, there are lots of places that they can go to, to be berated. 
But what I want to invite you into is my own personal struggle, and my guess is that I am speaking for a small segment of, of the population who have in the forefront of their own minds this struggle about, come on, is there really a personal God? And when we hear this from such uh, diverse people, uh, from, from Hammershold uh, to Jim Baker, a personal relationship with God. Now, I will say several things about that today, but one of the things I want to, to put as kind of bookends for our discussion is on the one hand, the first reaction generally of human beings to a discussion of God, particularly when the other person is coming from a position of authority, the first reaction is inferiority. That is to say, when somebody says, God told me, or God said, or God direct, or led, the first reaction generally is, I'm wrong. Because God doesn't talk to me and lead me, and I don't hear the secret voice uh, uh, or the divine golden telephone line, and there must be something wrong with me. I'm here to tell you that um, you don't have to come from a position of superiority in order to be uh, compensating for the position of inferiority when somebody talks that way. I'm just going to tell you that there are those of us who have master's degrees and doctor doctorates that uh, don't hear God speak to us in clear, identifiable American English. But on that bookend, I want to remind you that we are language bare when we begin to talk about God. And so the simplest thing to do, and I think sometimes too simplistic, the simplest thing to do is just talk in human terms. And so we anthropomorphize God, and that is put human qualities on God. God talks, God hears, God leads, God walks. So much of the time we don't know the process through which the one who's speaking went in order to say, God told me. It is somewhere between seizing a moment from a position of authority in order to exploit or manipulate, or it is simply that the journey has been so mysterious and difficult to arrive at the position of clarity that the simplest thing I can do is to say, God said. Thank you. <laughs> must have been a caricature of somebody that you enjoyed. Now that's one book in. <clears throat> when somebody speaks in anthropomorphic language about God, it appears that they are talking about a personal God that has a tongue, that speaks. Or it means that they are just integrating an experience into a simple language system that's human means one of the two. But our reaction generally is to be inferior about it. Even when I've been doing this as long as I have, 
and hear somebody say, God told me, there's a sense in me that goes, what? I'm going to try harder. I'm going to study the Bible more, and I'm going to pray harder, and I'm going to be more open and more vulnerable because that person is getting a direct line that I haven't gotten. Now let me check this off and see what it is I'm doing wrong. I've totally dedicated my life to God. I went to the seminary. I've given up so much. I'm enjoying my martyrdom a little too much, perhaps. And so all of these things that I've tried so hard for my youth to do in order to get just one word from God that I could recognize in American English as clear. Uh, so I, I, too, start from the position of inferiority about that. Now, the other bookend I want to put, as we discuss and dialectical theism, I want to put the fact that on this bookend of the discussion, there is nothing. Silence. Those things about which we cannot know, there is nothing to be said. radical anthropomorphic language, the Lord led, the Lord said, the Lord did. And the other end of that is, there is nothing that we can say. Now between the literal God with a tongue that wags in my ear and not yours, between there and nothing, it seems to me there are some things we can say. The mature journey of the spirit requires honesty, even at the risk of rejection or misunderstanding, it requires honesty, and that is to say that we must look at all sides and express those, allow those to come to consciousness and be articulated to another. Now, one of the things that we tend to seduce ourselves into believing is that if we have an internal conversation that we've actualized something. You know that phenomenon when you've written the letter to the editor and once you've done it in your mind, there's no need to do it. Yeah. How many letters to the editor have you written? I write them weekly. I've never sent one yet. There's a sense that I do work it out in my own mind, but to actualize something, that's part of the process of valuing, is that you have to state it publicly. And so if you have these honest feelings about God, whatever that means for you, if they are to be a part of your own uh, fabric of spirit, then you've got to weave all the threads in, including the black ones. 
maybe even including the iridescent ones, because that kind of honesty, I think, creates the kind of God that has integrity and creates in us a sense of integrity about our relationship with God. So you must find a safe place or a safe group or a spiritual director or somebody you trust, an intimate conversation with a significant other to say, I don't believe it. It's okay. Remember, I'm continuing, continually parroting Bishop Pike on this issue when he was the chaplain at Columbia University in a a young distraught student came to him and said, I do not believe in God. And he said, tell me about this God in which you do not believe. And when she had finished, he said, I don't believe in that God either. To be honest about what you don't believe or what you have difficult believing in, uh, the agnostic position is probably uh, the position that is moving toward faith. I don't think that agnosticism is a degeneration or a disintegration. I think it is a, an integration, a moving of asking more questions and greater questions. Now, that doubt is the prolegomena, the beginning of faith, that is not its opposite. And so to be honest and ask the questions, and I believe that creates for us a kind of, uh, shall we say, mental tennis or teeter-totter, tennis game or teeter-totter. And that is to say that we move from one opposite to another about God in our own risking of our experience and reflecting upon it. I will list some of the dialectics about God today in order to give you some comfort about surely what you've thought or surely what you felt about God. And if you haven't, uh, I invite you into the stimulating dizziness of the freedom uh, to think the unthinkable. For if you do not think the unthinkable, then you will never become any more than you now know. I think God must surely be excited about our using our freedom, even at the risk of losing us. For the quality of the relationship is so much greater when we exercise the freedom of thought and imagination because there's so much more to whom God can relate. If God had wanted Pinocchios, he would have created us with more strings. Now, there are some things about God that we must look at, and I began with a discussion about a bookend and the other bookend being silence. That the two dialectics about God that we must continually wrestle with are the one between being and nothing. Being and nothing, the two dialectics of the beginning of a discussion about God. Either God is the fullness of all being that allows being and lets be, or there is nothing. 
Which is it? My mind wants to know. Is God being? And that is to say, God does exist as being, or there is a non-existent being. A mature faith has to, to go all the way uh, to the fullness of either of those opposites. I'm pushing as far as possible with the beginning of one's own consciousness about oneself and one's own experience with others and the reflection upon that experience. We must push the analog as far as we can go, and that is to say, if I am being, these are my qualities, and if you are being, these are the qualities I experience in you. I begin to look for the fullness of the best possible human being by my own experience, by my own thoughts, and my own feelings, and my own intuitions, my own senses, and push that as far as I can into the fullness of being. And then to begin to uh, disassemble that um, back past my own limitation down through the lower order of things until there is non-existence. Which is it? There are times that I feel that there is no more than I now know. And what I now know is not enough. And my moments of greatest despair come when I say to myself, is this all there is? I mean, is it a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Is what I'm called to do is to fornicate and read the New York Times. I mean, what is the nature of what it means to be being? And there is something in me that says that it is very mundane, so much so that the logical conclusion of being is to become nothing. It is more logical, given our experience, to argue the position of nothingness, for it is out of nothing that we came. And it is toward nothing that we move. On that posture, I must be as conscious of the absurdity of the journey as the German Jew locked in the boxcar moving with sure destiny on a one-way track to an oven. What are you going to do with the honesty of that? Doesn't it somehow have its own rancid breath whispering in your ear? Isn't there just a piece of you that uh, sometimes is the last thought between consciousness and unconsciousness at sleep? 
says in a kind of exasperated exhale, I am moving toward nothing. The most mature religious individual is the one who lifts that possibility up and considers it. It is logical. Considers it with hard evidence that all of this is all we are. That we now see what the mystery is and it means that we come from nothing to the absurdity of this something only to return to nothing ponder that possibility it is a greatest threat for human beings but you cannot become fully human until you're able to lift that up as a conscious reality as a continuing possibility the threat of non-being Now the glory of the human spirit is that in the theory of opposites is that if we push that to its extreme, we see its opposite emerging. That the threat of non-being is so threatening to human beings that if we push our being into nothingness, we begin to become alive. We begin to struggle as if when we took that position in the last kind of amber glow of consciousness before we drifted off to sleep thinking that this is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing and I am predestined to return to nothingness, that when we push it to its extreme and its despair, that we roll on our backs and it's as if somebody has put the pillow on our face and is suffocating us, and we begin to fight for one more breath. We have taken it to its opposite, and when we do, we struggle for new being for a new concept, for a new revelation, for a significant step of growth. Pull through the hard keyhole of being honest enough to raise the question that somewhere between fullness of being and nothingness I exist. And when I take it to the fullest opposite of extreme of becoming nothing is a time I get in touch with the significance of being. Now I've taken a quantum leap in a spiritual journey toward maturity because there is something within us that will resist and resist that possibility. Our expectation of being then, the expectation of being that we talk about as God will no longer be satisfied to be just another human being. that the language system will become inadequate. I can no longer talk about God just the way I talk about my other relationships. It will be an inadequate 
analog. To realize that nothingness is a possibility and to take it all the way down the track to that dead-end oven and to see the suffocation that comes from that and the will to be that comes transcending that. Then the being to whom we want to be related we are not satisfied to consider as just another human relationship. And so we have taken a quantum leap in an understanding of the mystery of God. And maybe we aren't satisfied any longer with a language system that said, God talked to me, God led me, God spoke to me. Maybe we need a language system that is greater than that. But where in the world is it? And maybe when we have been in this teeter-totter and this tennis game for long enough, we realize that the object is not to balance the extreme. The object is not to balance the extreme. The object is to integrate them. So that we say, God is being like nothing I know. So that both are true. God is being, but not like anything I know. So there is a sense about God that is, for me, in my journey at this time, as though it were nothing. And then we come to the mature faith uh, to lift up and say, perhaps it's possible that God has no opposite. Now, there is the other dialectic. Those of you who have your pencils out, there are five of these. <clears throat> and there's ten minutes. I was never very good at math, but that's two minutes apiece. It looks like we've got five lectures here. The second dialectic in this dialectical theism, and by the way, if nothing else, this morning you can walk away with something uh, pretentious to say. <laughs> when somebody says, uh, where do you go to church? You can say, oh, I go to Christ Church Cathedral, but I'm a dialectical theist. A second understanding of dialectical theism is to consider the opposites of one and many. I mean, scratch the surface of any monotheist, that's one who worships one God, and you'll have a polytheist, and we worship many gods. Now, we pride ourselves in this tradition called Christianity that we are the heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, beginning with Abraham and that unique covenant and giant leap in the evolution of religious consciousness when God came to Abraham and said, I am, rather than we are. And I make covenant with you, one God 
one people. We are monotheists and we come out of that great monotheistic tradition. And the people of Buddhism and Islam say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're monotheist? How can we claim to be monotheistic when we worship the three gods? Oh yes, I know you say they're three in one, but how can that be? The dialectic of God is that we experience God as one source, yet experienced in many ways. To take a dialectical theism that has to somehow, remembering now, not simply balance extremes of one and many, but integrate them. So that we see that there is one God with many experiences and expressions of God. What is God? God, it seems to me, as we begin to discuss our experience of God, that we inevitably come to a Trinitarian formula, whether we're Christian or not. Because the Trinitarian formula is that which comes from talking about the experience of the one God. Is God approachable, knowable? Is there something of God in our experience? Does God give a flip about history? Has God ever taken any risks? <clears throat> Does God know what it is to die? Is there not some human experience of God? And so we begin to talk about a God as that which cannot be captured by history. And we talk about God who dwells within history. A God creator, a God incarnate, and God is spirit. In spite of the wisdom of St. Patrick when asked about the Trinity and he plucked out of the Irish soil a piece of clover and said, is this one plant or is it three? The response was, what a great logo. <laughs> We'll make it the symbol of all Ireland. <laughs> we have a dialectic within our own experience and our own questioning about God, and that is, is there one source? Or are there many sources? Is there one experience or are there many experiences? A third is the incomprehensible nature of God and the knowing of God alluded to in the first dialectic but somehow different can we know that which is incomprehensible how can we know that which is beyond our own comprehension 
is a great question. And how do we know if we know? And don't we know more than we know? And on the bulletin last week, Lewis Thomas, the physician who writes well, writes nice essays, <clears throat> unusual for physicians, that's why he's so exceptional, to write where somebody can understand them. <laughs> he says, my mind is smarter than I am. My way of saying in the spiritual quest that there's th there are things I know that I don't know. And so how can we know God if we don't know ourselves? The proposition of dialectical theism is a proposition of knowing that which is incomprehensible. Now, there are certain things that we know, like a rock that seems to be uh, something against which we can define other things, we place ourselves in relationship to, come to some uh, cognitive agreement about the definition of a rock. But there are other things about which we can't finally know that you know what I know about it. One of the great philosophical mistakes is to assume that when we say we know, that we know what we're talking about. It's not only a problem of epistemology about that, the no, how do we know, but the question of, I do know some things, and you know some things, but when you say that, do you know the same thing I know? Uh, for instance, let's both drink a glass of water. How do I know that that water tastes to me as it does to you? Now, water is always a good example, not only because it's one of my favorite symbols, but also, have you ever tried to describe the taste of water to someone? What is its analogy? <clears throat> what does it taste like? How do I know that what you know is the same thing that I know? Can we talk about knowing God then? That which is incomprehensible must have no relationship to me because I'm only related to those things that I comprehend. So we have a, a dialectic between the known God and the incomprehensible. Well, once again, we are thrust in this discussion by moving back and forth between these bookends, one of an anthropomorphic, simplistic language system to where God looks, sounds, and acts just like we do. God walks, God talks. Moving from that book into looking into the abyss of nothingness where silence is all we can say about God. Can we know that which we cannot comprehend? How do you know a song? You can remember it, you can identify it, but can you know it? How do you know a piece of art? How do you know wisdom? 
maybe once again we're thrown into the reality that there are no categories for our knowing. That leaves us either once again in that tension between God as nothing and God as everything, realizing that we're somewhere in between and always trying to integrate that dialectic. Not satisfied with either extreme, we integrate them into a growing sense of relatedness. And you don't do so without asking the question. Now, as I look at my list and my wrist, <laughs> it looks like we have another lecture left here. So you can tell your friends that you're in a course on dialectical theism uh, and that it begins at roughly 10 o'clock on Sunday morning right here. And I have one, two, three more categories of dialectical theism. Uh, and I may come up with some more now that I have another lecture in store. 